I want to continue in our uh, look at grace. Grace is one of those things that uh, it, we don't understand very well. And not that it's difficult to understand. It just doesn't always make sense to us. But unless we understand grace, our default is to performance slash religion. If we don't understand grace, it's very difficult to understand how to follow God. And it's very difficult. We cannot understand his heart without understanding grace. Uh, and in the absence of grace, we're tr forced to trust our own behavior, our own ability. And we end up living with this sense of, of uh, entitlement almost that God deserve, like we deserve something better than what we have from God because we're trying to be good. And so grace is one of those things that unless we get this, everything else about God and everything else about following Jesus and everything else about the heart of the Father gets convoluted and confused. Uh, and so as I read the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, as I, as I just get into that, I see grace over and over and over and over and over again. Nearly every story, every historical account, every interaction with God, between God and people, between Jesus and people, I see grace upon grace upon grace. And so I just want to recap where we've been. The writer of Hebrews says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. There's a great danger of people in church, though having Jesus, a relationship with Jesus, miss grace. And it just seems so odd that that would happen. But a lot of churches produce a lot of religious people, and religious people constantly miss grace. And so the writer of Hebrews says, don't, don't miss this. Don't fail to obtain this, both for salvation and for life. And we're reminded in 2 Peter, as Peter wrote this letter, he reminds us, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace is something that we have to grow in, both in the knowledge of it, the understanding of it, but also the acquisition of it and the, and the implementation of it and the receiving of it. And so in an effort to not miss it and to grow in grace, we're going to continue in this series that I've called Scandalous Grace because grace is most beautiful when it's masked to something scandalous. Let's remind ourselves what grace is. The definition of grace is favor. It's favor that flows from a superior to an inferior. Grace never flows up, it always flows down. So when we talk about the grace of God, to talk about the grace of God, we have to first acknowledge that God is the superior and we are the inferior. And the superior never owes the inferior a thing. And so that's favor. It's the unmerited favor and the unmerited, the undeserved blessing of God. It's the inexhaustible supply of favor where God does for us what we could never do for ourselves. It's grace. And so I want to get into a, a book of the Bible in the Old Testament called the book of Ruth. And if you, all the, all the scripture look, look at today, all the, the, the things on the screen is on our app. And so if you if you haven't downloaded our app on your smartphone or your mobile device, whatever, make sure you do that so you can follow along there. But if you're, if you're a real good person and still uses a paper Bible, and if you're one of the good ones, the smart ones, the intelligent ones, the ones that know how to read, go ahead and turn. Was, was that enough of, of, of the Bible shaming? Yeah. 
Anyway, go to the book of Ruth, and I'm going to jump into Ruth. Now, Ruth is one of those books that is, it's huge. And there's so much in it. There's so much doctrine. There's so much theology. It's so deep. There's so much of Old Testament law, so much of, of, of history, so much foreshadowing of Jesus and his, his substituting, uh, substitutional atonement is what we call it, for us on the cross where, where he buys us back, he redeems us. And it's all foreshadowed in the book of Ruth. And it's so deep. And so, I mean, there have been books that have been written on this book. And, and I can't get into the, all the depth of it, but I want to take a look at it from a, a, a higher view through the lens of grace and use the book of Ruth, especially the first two chapters, to unpack and unfold for us this mystery and this beauty and that magnificence that is grace. And it is absolutely scandalous. My hope and prayer is that we'll see that this morning. And so... As I looked on our, I lifted on our app, it's on the screen, if you're following along, Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. I'm going to call him Eli, just for the sake of our discussion, it's just easier that way. His wife's name was Naomi. And the two names of his, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. That means uh, weak and sick. And it says just a, not real good names to name your boys. Uh, they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now, just let me continue setting the stage of what's going on here as we pick up this the story of Luke. Eli and Naomi have two kids, two sons. And they live in Bethlehem in Judah. Now, Bethlehem, the name Bethlehem literally means the house of bread. And there's a famine in the house of bread. And so they move, and Judah, Bethlehem's in Judah. Judah means the place of praise. And so they move from Bethlehem in Judah to Moab. Now, as a dad, your family's hurting, ain't got no food, cupboards are bare, power companies turn off the power. You know, you, I mean... Some of you, like me, have been there. And, and so you're in a bad spot. So what's daddy decide to do? Move. Go to a place of possibility. So initially, does this sound like a good idea or a bad idea? It's a good idea. Right? I mean, you're a responsible father. You're going to take care of your family. Job's drying up. Resources drying up. We're going to move someplace. We might have a shot. If you want to say it's a good idea, you look at it from that perspective. We're going to move out of the place of famine to a place of possibility. However, biblically, Psalm 60, verse 8, and Psalm 108, verse 9, talk about this place, Moab, that they moved to. And it's called God's wash basin, his wash part, its toilet. It's, a, it's, like, it's like Bakersfield. This is one of those places. <laughs> Normally I say Chowchilla, but I, the people that are watching online, I might have folk in Chowchilla watching me, so I don't want to. Nobody's going to church in Bakersfield, so I can say that one. So. Just kidding. I'm kidding. Love you, Bakersfield. How does someone from the Fresno area talk bad about Bakersfield, though? You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's, it's pretty. Anyway, so, so he moves to Moab, which is God's wash pot. This is not a good place. So how, why would God say that of this place called Moab? Well, we have to understand how Moab came to be and the people of Moab, how, who they, how they, 
how they came to be. Moab was the result of the ancestral relationship between Lot and his daughters. Way back in the day, Abraham and Lot, way back in the day. In Genesis 19, Lot is, is, is just trying to make it. And he's got two daughters with him. And there's nobody else around. And his daughters start thinking, we have no future. We have no help. We have no hope. Who are we going to marry to have children by? And so they look at their dad. And the oldest one says to the younger one, look, I'm going to get him drunk tonight. You get him drunk tomorrow night. And they get him slobbering drunk. So drunk, the Bible says, he didn't know when the girl came in and when he left his tent. Now, I hope none of you have been that drunk. And if you are, don't admit it. I mean, you're talking, this is like the bad stuff, the bad juju going down right here. And so she gets him that drunk and sleeps with him, then the younger daughter, and she gets pregnant in this incestuous relationship. That's Moab. And so God says, no, 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 no. No. So Eli, in the place of bread, in the place of praise, because of a famine, moves to Moab, away from God's people, away from God's land, away from the place of worship, away from the people of worship, away from the, 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 the calendar of worship, and moves to a place that God detests away from God's presence. Was this a good move or a bad move? But wait, there was famine... There was a bad situation. All he did was move to a place of possibility, a place of provision, right? What's the harm? He moved away from God, away from God's people, away from God's things to a place where he thought he could do better for himself. It amazes me that he was in the house of bread and moved to Moab looking for bread. Where did that idea to move come from? Did it come from God? I don't think it did. I think it came from a place of fear. Because he was in a place that was difficult. He was in a place that was painful. He was in a place where he saw no future. And because of fear of the future, he ran away from the place of God. And this is what happens to us and in us and in our life so often. We get in that place where we're fearful of what is, where we don't like what what is, where what is is painful and difficult, and we don't see anything of value, of benefit here. It's just easier to leave. Right? Right? Don't run away from the place God has called you. Just because things get difficult doesn't mean that God is absent. This is where we get it wrong. We think things, if God is here, it'll be good. So God can't be here if it's bad. And so when it gets bad, we assume God isn't. So we're going to go somewhere else where we take care of ourselves. Stay where God puts you until God says to move somewhere. I'd rather be in a place of famine with God than a place of my own provision without him, right? So he moves to Moab. The result... Eli and Amy moved to Moab. Their two sons married two Moabite women. Not part of God's people, not part of God's plan. And then immediately Eli dies. And then 10 years later, both sons die. 
Probably not a good decision to go to Moab. And so, this is how telling this decision is. The book of Ruth comes right after the book of Judges. Okay, so in the Bible, the way the books are listed by the Holy Spirit, Judges and then Ruth starts right when Judges end. The book of Judges is the story of God's people in the land when they had no king. God would raise up Judges when his people got in trouble. But it ends this way. This is the way the book of Judges ends. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. So they had no king, so they just did whatever they wanted to do. There was no consultation of God. There was no direction from God. And they just did whatever they wanted. They didn't care about what God said. That's how Judges ends. And immediately the book of Ruth picks up and says, in those days, when everybody did what they wanted, there was a famine, and so Eli left. No consultation of God. He did what he wanted. Elimelech did whatever he wanted without consulting God. Here's, here's what we have to understand. To consult God puts us in a position to rely on his grace, not our plans. To consult God says, God, I feel like this is what I want to do, but I'm going to rely on your direct. I'm going to rely on your, and I'm going to rely on your grace in the midst of a famine rather than my plans. See, here's why it's important to rely on God's grace rather than our plans. Because when we rely on God's grace, it gives God an opportunity to show off. When we rely on God's grace, it gives him an opportunity to show how big and good he is. When we rely on our plans, God says, well, that's fine. You can rely on your plans, but you take yourself outside of the scope of my grace. You want to do your own thing, do your own thing. But if you stay here and rely on my grace, now I have an opportunity to show off. And God loves to show off, not because he's arrogant. We'll learn why in a minute through the life of Ruth. As we go through this story, I want to impress upon you a couple things. There are pictures in Ruth. That gives us pictures of things to come. And so in the story of Ruth, there's this man we'll meet. His name is Boaz. And he's a picture of Christ. He's a picture of Jesus. By how he treats Ruth, by what he does, performs in her life, it gives us a glimpse of what Jesus will do ultimately spiritually for us. Ruth is a picture in her own story of us. People who are not God's people, who have been adopted into the family. And her mother-in-law, Naomi, is a picture of the Jews. She's, she's, she's part of, she's, she's, she's created as part of the people. And so keep that in mind as we go through this. So there's, in Moab, we're left with Naomi and her two daughters-in-law. And Naomi figures, well, it's not so bad here in, in Moab. I'm going to go back home. At least I got kinfolk there. Like, I, at least I know how that world works. I'm going to go back to there. And she tells her daughters-in-law, look, you're from Moab. You're from this place. You go home to your family. I'll go home to mine. Let's just separate because I got nothing to offer you now. Matter of fact, this is how she says it. Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have more sons who could become your husbands? See, the way it worked then, if you, if you were kind of adopted in the family, even by marriage, if your husband died, then you, were, you had the right to, to get the next son available. And just stay in the family, continue the family line. So she's like, are you going to wait for me to have more kids so you can marry the next one? She said, return home. I'm too old to have another husband, even if I thought there was still hope for me. Even if I had a husband tonight and gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? No. 
Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned. Have you ever felt like God's hand has turned against you? Have you ever felt like you're in that spot in life and his foot is on your neck? Do you know what I'm saying? Like you could admit it in church. It's okay. Like, like I've been in those places. I'm sure some of you have too, where you just felt like God, like even you are against me. I can't get a I can't get a break. It's just one thing after another, after another. And that's where this poor woman is. And she tells her daughters to go home. Now, one of her daughter's name was Orpah. And she went back home. The other one's name was Ruth. And Ruth's response to Naomi is profound. Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I'll be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you from me, you and me. It is a profound statement. This is a woman who didn't know of Naomi's God. She didn't know of Naomi's people. But she says, look, my life is yours now. I will use all of that I am, all the resources I have, which is nothing, but I'll use it to serve you. Did Naomi have anything to offer Ruth? Nothing. Did Naomi have any type of future to say, well, if you stay with me, at least you're all together. Naomi had nothing to offer. Naomi had nothing to put on the table and say, Ruth, here, if you join me, because you join me, there was nothing there. Yet Ruth gave her her life. It's grace. Naomi could do nothing to offer Ruth. And Ruth said, you have me. I will give you everything I have. I'll follow you, I'll support you, I'll encourage you, and I will be in this with you. It's grace. And so they start home and they head back to Bethlehem. And this is what the Bible says. The two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women started talking. Right? I got no feedback for that one. I mean, they're on Facebook and they're on Camelgram and whatever it is they were doing back then to start gossiping with each other. And they just start talking, all the women. And they say, can this be Naomi? Is this the one who left and her husband died and her sons died? Is, that, is she coming back now? And Naomi returned to Moab, accompanied by Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Just at the right moment. And we'll see why in just a moment. Now, Naomi, in returning to Bethlehem with Ruth, the city just starts talking because they've heard the tragic story that is Naomi. They've heard about this woman, this Moabite that's coming amongst them. Like, Naomi was down the family line related to this man named Boaz. And Boaz was, how do they say it? Just dripping? Yeah, I mean, he just had it. Yeah, he just had it. He was wealthy. He was a landowner. He was powerful. He had authority. And so, and so as they're traveling back to Bethlehem, Naomi is explaining to Ruth, this is how it works in my country. And this is how we're going to start taking care of ourselves. And so in Ruth chapter 2, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go 
to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone who's in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So Ruth went out, entered a field and began to glean behind the harvest. I'm going to explain to you what this means in just a minute. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Eli. As it turned out, she just happened to wander at the right time of the barley harvest into the right field. As it turned out, did you know that coincidence is not a kosher word? Like there's no coincidence, it's always God's sovereign hand. So this is what's happening. What you see here is God's welfare system. And it works a lot better than our welfare system. And so the Old Testament law said this, when a landowner owned a land and harvested, he would pay his harvesters to walk through the field, starting at one end and going to the other, and they could pass through the field one time. And they weren't allowed to pick the grain from the edges or the corners of the field. And they would go through the field one time. And whatever they picked was the owners of the field. Whatever fell to the ground, they had to leave. So then the people of need, the poor people, widows, orphans, those without work, could then go through and glean the field and pick the harvest from the edges and the corners and whatever was on the ground. So Naomi, having told Ruth, this is how we are going to survive, Ruth says, let me go to this field and I'll go see what I can get. She just happens to be at Boaz's field. Now, this was God's welfare system and it was beautiful because it allowed the poor to have dignity. Rather than sitting around waiting for a paycheck to show up in the mail, they could work and still retain dignity. Because the Bible says, if you don't work, you don't eat. That's a good system. And so this is their way of both providing for someone and protecting someone, their dignity. And so as it turns out, she just happens to be in this field of Boaz. As it turns out, God's hand is behind every movement of the sparrow. And so Boaz shows up at his field because he's an owner of the field, good for him. He wants to see how the workers are doing. And there's something about this girl, man, that just catches his eye. He's like, <laughs> good Lord, look at that one. I mean, this girl is just, she's smoking. Verse 5 says, I mean, it says it in a God way, but it basically it says, boy, she, she catches this guy's eye. And not only that, verse 6 and 7 says she's beautiful, but she's also a hard worker. I mean, that, that's marrying material right there. Boy, she turns heads and she can make some money. You better lock that up. And so he's like, boy, this girl. And so he approaches her and this is what he says. Boaz said to her, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field. He said, don't you step away from here. I'm going to keep you close. You know what I'm saying? And don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you're thirsty, go and get a drink from the water uh, jars the men have filled. Notice what he says. He says, I am a man of authority. And you have no authority in this land. You're here illegally. You're here as an immigrant. And you have no rights in our land. But I'm going to use my authority to protect your integrity, your dignity, and your very life. They will not touch you. I've ensured your safety. Do you know how things change 
when those in authority start acting like this to those in need? You understand? Boy, the world will work better if we just do what the Bible says. It would just be so much better. He says, I will protect you. I will help you. Stay in this place because I've guaranteed your safety. Use my resources as your own. He says, you are here in our country without resource. I'm going to leverage what I have for your benefit. Profound. Profound. At this, look at her response. She bowed down to the face of the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me a foreigner? May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You've put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I don't have the same standing of any of your servants. This is ridiculous. Her first response, she's blown away that she would have this kind of favor and this kind of mercy and this kind of grace and this kind of blessing because she knows she doesn't deserve it. She says, literally, I am a foreigner and I have no rights in this land of your people. I don't deserve any of this. I have no rights to be blessed. I have no rights of expectation. There are others even of your own clan that, ha- that are better that should reserve this, not me. I mean, it's this attitude of humility. It's this attitude of, I only have by your grace. But she could respond that way because she knew that she was protected. I mean, he actually said, if you get thirsty, go get some of the water that the boys have drawn for you. Like usually the women got the water for the boy. And then the boys now, he says, hey, you, I'm elevating your status. Even though you don't deserve it. And she asked the greatest question one can ask when coming face to face with grace. Why have I found favor in your eyes? Why have I found favor? Do you remember what grace is? Undeserved and unmerited favor. Let me tell you the danger of grace. The danger of grace is that when you get blessed, you think you deserve it. That's the danger of grace. Our default is when I get something good, it's because I worked. Because I, I put in hours. It was my idea. It was by my hand. I deserve this. I, Ruth knew she didn't deserve it. She knew it was grace. Now watch what Boaz says. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. This is so crucial in understanding the role of grace. It is true. He says, may you be blessed for what you have done. It is true, this law of reaping and sowing. We do sow what we reap, both good and ill. So he says, may you be blessed for what you have done. What did she do? What did she do? She had this woman who had nothing to offer her, this woman who could give her no future, no resource, no promise, and she gave this woman who had nothing to offer everything that she had. She gave Naomi grace, undeserved and unmerited favor of her life. Do you understand? And what did she receive in return? Grace. 
She had nothing to offer Boaz, no benefit to his life whatsoever. But what did he do? He gave her favor. She sowed grace and she reaped grace. Do you understand? You understand? This is important. Not only that, but he says, may you be blessed, continue to be blessed for what you have done. And because you've come to the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you've come for refuge. Literally what he says, may you continue to be blessed. May God bless you because you fled to God for protection. Now watch this. When Eli was in trouble and need, he fled from the place of bread to the place of his own provision. Had he stayed in that place and said, Father, in the midst of my pain, in the midst of my confusion, in the midst where I don't know that the future is secure, in the midst of my hunger, I'm going to run to you for protection. This story changed. His life changed. His, son, every, his family changes. But he fled from the place where God had him, the actual place of bread, to the place of his own provision. And Boaz says, may you continue to be blessed because you have run to God for protection. He doesn't say, may God bless you because you've deserved it, because you've earned it. He said, may God bless you because you've run to him and confided in him. Here's the thing. When we are in those places of famine, of starvation, of pain, of difficulty, an unsure future, where you just don't know, where everything in your future looks like defeat, defeat, defeat. You run to God and confide in him and say, God, even in this place of need and pain, I will stay because I'm running to you. And because you do that, Boaz tells her, may God continue to pour his favor on you. I was just reading yesterday in Psalm chapter 2, and Psalm 2 verse 12 says, happy and blessed are those who confide in and run to God for protection. See, when we're in those places of need and pain and fear, we have the choice to run to a place of our own provision or stay in the place of God's protection. Because oftentimes the two are mutually exclusive. You understand what I'm saying? And when we choose to stay in the place of God's protection, that's when he has the opportunity to pour out his grace and show off. So watch what happens. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, hey, girl, come on over here. I got seed just for you. He says, snuggle up. He says, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. Do you notice the elements of bread and wine? The symbols of communion. It's the symbols of a relationship, the symbols of Christ's body, the symbols of grace. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain, and she ate all she wanted and had doggy bags left over. <laughs> See, here's the thing. She not only received provision, she received abundance. And this is what we miss so often that we will leave a place of difficulty for the place of perceived provision, all the while missing out on abundance. When we leave the place of God, which is the place of grace, which is the place of abundance, for the place of perceived provision, we always miss out on the abundance because we miss out on grace. See, grace is not just getting what you need. Grace gives abundant provision. And that's what he was offering her. Watch what Boaz does. 
As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. I'm going to explain this. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. Boaz instructed his men. Said, let her pick the grain, not from the ground. Let her pick it from the stalks. I don't even want her to have to bend over to pick it up. I'm going to make it as easy and as bountiful as possible for this girl. I don't even want to have her to have to sit down and pick it. She can pick it straight from the sauce. And not only that, as you're collecting all this stuff and you're walking along, you know she's behind you, drop some for her. So this is kind of how it went. They got this big old thing of, 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 of stalks of grain and they're walking along and they're like, oh, drop that stock. Hope boss doesn't find out. They're going to say, oh, drop that one too. I'm really very clumsy. Oh, drop that one too. Hope I don't get fired for this. Oh, drop that one too. And she just walking along behind her going, oh, look at what I got. 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 Like, how easy can this be? Right? He can't make it any easier for her. So she gets to pick up not just what falls from the ground, but she gets to pick up full stocks without even doing any work for it. Ruth was so favored. She reaped the benefits of picking the grain without picking the grain. What do you think the other women were saying? <laughs> it ain't fair. I love the way the King James Version records this. It, the King James Version says, and drop handfuls of purpose for her. Now, this is profound. Drop handfuls of purpose for her. Here's why. Because grace has a purpose. God's favor over you has a purpose. God's blessing of you has a purpose. More than just making you happy, more than just for your benefit, grace has a purpose. So I know you're asking, well, Baldy, what's the purpose? Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. I appreciate the leaning out the Baldy part. In her seeing and experiencing the goodness of God, the grace of Boaz, it causes her to fall in love with him. That's what grace does. When you experience the grace of God, the only reason he does that is just not for your benefit, but so that your heart will fall. How could you not love this guy? God's grace over you is intended to cause you to love him more. That's the purpose of it. Drop handfuls of purpose so she will see my heart and fall in love with me because I want this relationship with her. That's what God does with grace. God has been so gracious to us and he has given us so, some of you have the ability to dissect the intricacies of an engine fix it and put it back together you don't deserve that that's grace because a lot of us can't some of you have been graced with incredible beauty some of you will get beauty in heaven one day hopefully but <laughs> Like, like whether it's something like tangible or mental, like God has just favored. And when God favors us, he doesn't take it back. And he doesn't feel sorry. Matter of fact, Romans 11 says God's gift and his call are irrevocable. He's not sorry for anything that he's given. Even, get this, even if you walk away from him, his favor is still on you. He still gives it to you. He doesn't take it back because you've been naughty. 
I mean, can you imagine? This is just scandalous. Because I know if I give somebody something and they turn that back on I me, mean, I'm going to take it back if I can, right? This is just scandalous what God does. See, our handfuls of purpose become handcuffs of possessions if we're not careful. And we're getting tied to our possessions. We want something more from God's hand rather than just want a relationship. Not only that, did God's grace cause Ruth to fall in love with Boaz. It also caused Naomi to get a new glimpse of him. Who does Naomi represent in the story? The Jew. So that God's grace is poured out on him now and his people. So that the world will see how good is this God. She began to see how wonderful, magnificent this grace is. And she began to become more impressed with Boaz. See, when God blesses undeserving people, it just makes them look better and better and better. If God has blessed you and you realize it and people look at you and go, you don't deserve that. You know what your response is? You're like, you're right, I don't. This is stupid. You know, I don't deserve this. See, God's blessing on you is intended to show others how good God is. So don't ever use his blessing to try to make yourself look good as if they come from your hand. See, this is what we do all the time. We got something good and we start walking around like we deserved it, we earned it, we created it. It's designed to make God look good, not you. And so whenever you are blessed and you realize God's incredible, undeserved, unmerited blessing, just admit it. I don't deserve it. You're right. Point people to God's grace and just enjoy the faith. You know what the sign of recognizing grace is? Is gratitude, not grumbling. See, here's the problem. There are so many people in church that have been faithful, that have been good, and they've not done anything wrong in their minds. And they're like the oldest person, the oldest son in Luke 15 of the prodigal son story. This idiot kid offends daddy, goes off, wastes everything, comes back, daddy throws him a big old party. And the oldest son's sitting there going, hey, I have not been stupid. I've been obedient. I've done everything right. You ain't never given me what you've given him. He missed grace. See, the, the, here's the whole thing about grace. Grace is absolutely unfair. It is absolutely unfair. And if you want to relate to God based on rules, the righteous will get what is rightfully theirs, which is never grace. I would rather relate to God based on grace. See, grace people can celebrate when other undeserved people get blessed. Religious people grumble when undeserved people get blessed because all they see is what they think they deserve. And so here's, here's how this whole thing wraps up. I'm realizing I'm taking broad stro stro strokes from, from Ruth, but here's how this whole thing, Ruth and Boaz end up getting married because, I mean, come on. She's just drop-dead freaking gorgeous and a hard worker. I mean, and he's, I mean, he's wealthy, he's smart, he's gracious, he's kind. I mean, uh, this is like, this is like Kevin and Lisa. I mean, this is like amazing stuff right here. Okay, that's like a pity clap. That was terrible. <laughs> anyway. It's all grace, ain't it, Lisa? Because he don't deserve it, right? Yeah, that's, that's it right there. All right, so watch this. So here's how this whole thing rests up. 
Through the offspring the Lord gives you, this is a pronouncement over them. But through the offspring the Lord gives you through this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez. Woohoo! We got to ask the question, right? What's the question we got to ask? Who's Perez? Thank you for asking. So, look, I know I'm, I'm, my, my time is up, but I got some more to say. Can I, can I impress it upon you to allow me that opportunity to keep going with this? Is that all right? All right. So, if you, uh, who's Perez? You go back to Genesis 39. And in the lineage of the great fathers, the, 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 the men, the patriarchs of, uh, of the faith, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob has all these sons. One of them is named is Judah. Through this man, Judah, in Genesis 39, he's an old man with three sons. And his eldest son marries a girl named Tamar, and they get married, and that son dies. And so according to the law, she would then be able to marry the next son in line to keep the family line going. And so she marries the second son, the middle son, and he dies. Judah's got one more son. What do you think he's going to do with him? Go to your room. Don't pay attention to that girl. Right? And so she would wait until he was of marrying age, and then by law she could marry him to continue the family line. Well, Judah had no intent of letting this woman marry his third son because the first two died. And so he sends her away and says, just sequester yourself in your family's home and just wait. He had no intention of ever letting her marry. So what he was doing by not letting her marry his youngest, nor releasing her from the obligation so she could marry someone else, he was, he was, he was, damning her to a life of no future, no family, no kids, no nothing. And in that course of time, this youngest one grew up and she realized he's never going to let me marry her. Judah's wife died and he mourned her death. Tamar's sitting waiting in the wings for something to happen. Nothing's happening. Judah goes on a business trip. Business goes really well. He's an old man and he's lonely. He's coming back happy. And Tamar finds out that he's on a business trip, finds out his route. And she goes and waits on a street corner. She puts a veil over her face so he can't see who she is. And now, to be clear, it wasn't the veil of a prostitute, it was just the veil of a covering. So she wasn't acting as a prostitute, though she was covering herself as if, waiting on a street corner. Tamar knows, now by law, in this case, the father could fulfill the role of the husband and father a son through the daughter-in-law without it being considered incest because it's a daughter-in-law and there's no husband to continue the family line. It was very, very important. So Tamar knows that she has the right to that, but she knows Judah will never do that. So she conceals herself, sits on a street corner. He's coming back fat and happy and horny. He propositions her as a prostitute. And she, of course, agrees. And she gets pregnant and bears twins. One of them is Perez. May your family, almighty God, be that of Perez. Good blessing. I mean, that's, why are you saying that about me and my family? There was an Old Testament law in Deuteronomy 32 that said, actually, because of how this went down, though it was legal, it was certainly questionable, this kid could experience no inheritance for 10 generations. Why would you wish my family be like Perez? Because 
Perez was the chosen one of God. Though didn't deserve it, could offer nothing to God. The descendants of Perez, when the God's people came back from captivity in Babylon 1,200 years later. The Bible says in Nehemiah 11 that there are 468 men of Perez. His legacy, 1,200 years long. Not only that, this kid, Perez, of all people, in the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham's father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of whom? Perez. And Tamar as his mother. This kid is in the lineage of Jesus. Of all the people that God could orchestrate to be in the lineage of the son of God being born. He chose the son of an old man proposition when he thought as a hooker. To tell people, may your family be that of Perez, was not a statement of shame, was not a statement of defeat. It was a statement of grace and honor. Perez was the one who could offer the family line of Jesus, not Judah's own sons. Why Perez? Did Perez have anything of his life that was worthy of blessing? Anything of his life that was worthy of honor? Anything of his life that was worthy of favor? No. It was just an opportunity for God to exhibit his grace and his favor. Listen. If you have moved from the place of God to the place of Moab, move back. Regardless of the circumstances surrounding your life, your present is not the ending because of grace. Irregardless of what you don't have to offer God, rely on his grace, not your plans, because it gives him an opportunity to show off. Because why? Because grace always wins. Always. Why grace? Because God wants to show you how great he is. Why grace? Because God wants to show the world how much he can bless. Why grace? Because God wants to use his blessings to cause your heart to fall in love with his goodness. So wherever you are right now, you sit in that place and say, God, I will rely on your grace and your grace alone. I don't deserve it. I've done nothing to merit it. I thought I've created good stuff in my life, but it falls far short of what your grace would be. I want your grace. Oh, Lord, that you would bless me indeed and enlarge my territory. Let your hand be with me and keep me from evil. I'll be free from pain. Grace upon grace upon grace. I want more of it. I want more of it. I want more of it. And so I invite you this morning. In the midst of your Moab, in the midst of your famine, in the midst of your family like Perez, to say, God, I rely on your grace. I rely on your grace to bless me. I rely on your grace to free me from the land of Moab. I rely on your grace to heal me. I rely on your grace to go before me with favor so that I will fall in love with you more so that people who don't know you will see you show off in my life. Rick, come up here. I got to ask you this question. Is it scandalous that over your life right now, irrespective of what you've done in the past, regardless of what your last night was, 
regardless of what your past has been, would it be scandalous for you right now for God to pour favor on you? Would it be scandalous for God to say, you know what, I'm just going to, I'm going to open heaven and just pour blessing. Would that be scandalous? Would it be scandalous right now in the midst of your hurts, habits, hangups, addictions? Would it be scandalous if God just all of a sudden set you free from it all without you doing a thing? Would it be scandalous if in the midst of your sickness and disease, if God said, I'm going to heal you right now, you don't deserve this. You created this mess in your life, but as no consequence, I'm going to heal you. Would that be scandalous? Would it be scandalous for God to go before you with favor every day? If it's scandalous, that's how you know it's grace. Do you understand? The greater your famine, the greater your drought, the greater your need is the greater your opportunity for grace. You want to know what I've been praying over you and over me every day? about the last verse of Mark 16. That God would give me grace to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ and make plain that mystery. And then Mark 16 says this, Jesus worked with them to confirm his word by signs and wonders. That's what I've been praying. That God would work with me as I preach his word and confirm his word by signs and wonders. Grace. If it would be scandalous for God to intervene in your life right now and set you free and to remove the chains and to break the bondage and to repair the relationships and to heal the sickness and disease and to move in your life with favor, irregardless of your behavior and your good life. If that would be scandalous, that is grace. And my prayer is that God authenticates and works with his word to authenticate it by signs and wonders in your life. You ready for grace? By faith you begin to access into God's grace. Believe this and receive this. Pray with me, Father, thank you. Thank you. Thank you that you relate to us not based on our behavior, not based on how good we can be, not based on the good that we do, not based on the obedience that we can muster. Thank you that you respond to us through faith and grace. Father, you've said that those who come to you must believe that you are. We believe that you are the God of grace that pours out favor on the undeserving who authenticates your word by signs and wonders in this place for those of us who come to you in places of famine, in places of Moab, in great places of need, where we are begging, asking for your grace, your favor, regardless of our behavior. 
Father, move in such a way that authenticates your word, that by grace, chains are broken, that by grace, relationships are repaired, that by grace, bodies are healed, that by grace, favor comes, split the heavens and rain down your favor on your people to make yourself look better so we can see how good you are. And so an unbelieving world would sit up and take notice of a God who offers scandalous grace. Let's stand and sing together.